We're going to conclude our series, uh, Heart and Soul, today. And um, the subtitle there you can see is New People in God's Kingdom. Um, that's really critical, actually, because we talk about heart and soul, and we, we've been working through it over these past few weeks. But by connecting that what we're engaging with is a desire to be new people in a new kingdom is right at the heart of what we're dealing with this afternoon. What does it mean for our hearts to be confronted and for our hearts to be changed? Because that's actually what a new kingdom, as far as the Jesus of the New Testament, breaks into this world. We're going to see it in stark evidence this afternoon. I think in lots of ways, our 21st century Western church probably needs to hear this more than anything else. The confrontation towards our hearts. There is a huge amount of movement in our culture towards the idea of our hearts. Uh, we, we chase after our hearts' feelings. We chase after our desires. We chase after our experiences. Uh, and that's, in lots of ways, the, the foundations of a lot of that are tremendous. To be able to pursue the beauty of the world that we, we, we live in and to, to engage, in with, with it, uh, engage with it and be moved by it is a tremendous thing. Uh, I was fascinated to see, to read about the, the massive decline in kind of package holidays. Uh, and a lot of the uh, travel agents are putting that down to the Instagram generation. Fascinating. Because Instagram and the likes opens up for us the possibility of experiencing this world in a whole other way. Apparently, the, uh, the Thai beach where um, Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio's film, The Beach, was filmed, which is this kind of idyllic, tropical paradise, is now absolutely overrun with people who actually want to go there and experience it and see it in its beauty and are confronted with a whole load of rubbish on the beach by the 1,700 people who came on the previous cruise ship three hours ago, and it's chaos. But we want to experience things. It's our hearts. We are so, so governed by our hearts. And the Bible has got a huge amount to say about our hearts. And it is so easy for the church, I think, to, to slip into a reinforcing of experience and not actually be honest about the confrontation. Annie Dillard, the American writer, put it like this. Why do we people in churches seem like cheerful tourists on a package tour of the absolute? On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs, sufficiently aware of the condition. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we blithely invoke? It's madness to wear straw hats and velvet hats for church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. 
What she's saying is we come to church and there's a danger that we reinforce the feeling and the reality is that the message of Jesus is so powerful and we're engaging in a relationship with the awesome God of heaven and earth and we want it to be cutesy and fluffy and candy floss and nice and to never confront us. Jesus, in this section, as we conclude, heart and soul confronts our hearts. But we're going to see how that confrontation can actually lead to the deepest level of joyful worship. That's where we're headed this afternoon. So the first thing that we see is Jesus the disruptor. We see in the text that Jesus is engaging with some Pharisees who come along to him. The Pharisees are, if you like, the, the religious elite of the day of Jesus. The Pharisees were a, a, a branch of the, of, of the, the, the Jewish religion which had for centuries been working out and thinking through and shaping and putting into writing what it actually meant to be a follower of Yahweh, the God of the Jews. And they come along to Jesus and they say to Jesus, they've come all the way, they've come from Jerusalem and they say, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. That sounds, that sounds for us a really, really minor trivial thing, doesn't it? You don't wash it. That's the kind of thing that if you were over probably about 50, 55, you'd have got a clip around the ear for, not, for coming to the table with your hands not washed. If you're under that age, you'd have probably had a stern conversation about coming to the table with your hands not washed. What is this all about? Why is it so significant? Why are these religious leaders coming along to Jesus, the rabbi teacher, and confronting him and saying, your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat? What's going on? This is massive. You claim to be a teacher of Yahweh, the God, and you let them eat food without washing their hands? Unless we dig into this, unless we peel back the layers and live in this experience, that statement is totally bizarre, isn't it? So let's understand really what the Pharisees are saying. They're taking, they're taking a tradition that has grown up over the centuries and centuries and has become embedded in the way that people live. And it goes all the way back to Exodus in chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30, verse 17 to around about verse 20, talks about how the priests are to enter into or are to engage in sacrificial worship. And they are to wash before they engage in the eating and the sacrificing. They are to cleanse themselves. And over from that statement, this this tradition builds up. This way of thinking builds up. Wow, that, that is really important. That, that priestly, sacrificial devotion to God in the temple. Isn't that incredibly important? It is, isn't it? Or it was for them in their day. 
If you are going to be a true worshipper of Yahweh, the idea of being a true, devoted, cleansed worshipper of Yahweh was really critical in the temple. Now, how do we, they must have thought over the centuries, how do we make sure that we're thinking about that every day? Because to be honest, the temple is so separated from us. Some of us live in Jerusalem. Some of us don't live in Jerusalem. Some of us live hundreds of miles away. And the temple is really distant. So how do we maintain the idea of being cleansed? Well, the way that we do that is let's remember it by washing our hands before we eat. Because it connects us to the temple. It reminds us of who we are. We are those who cleanse ourselves because we're reminded that who we are as the people of the God, of the worshippers of Yahweh. Isn't that, do you see how that has built up? And how it's become an incredibly important thing for them to do. So that they remember that they are connected from the priests who wash. It has become a connection as the people who wash. Remind ourselves that we are connected to that sacrifice in the temple hundreds of miles away. A few years ago we were in um, Israel. Way up in the north is the area of Galilee where Jesus grew up and served the early part of his ministry. And then way down south, hours worth of drive, you come to Jerusalem. In between that, there's even now, huge sections of that road are desert. There is a disconnection between that up there and Jerusalem in the south. It's a separate world and, and it's really, really important when the temple is so much part of your life that you remember that you're connected to it way up there. And so the Pharisees have built up these traditions. Your disciples, if you call yourself a true rabbi teacher and your disciples can't even bother to wash their hands, why should we listen to you? Is what the Pharisees are effectively saying to Jesus. Why should we listen a moment to what you're teaching? Jesus turns round to them. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? One of the things that I love about Jesus is, is there's so many moments where you see, you feel as though, Jesus, you're hemmed in here. <laughs> you, you, they've got you. This is a fair question. You're a part of a heritage. You're part of a tradition. And what does he do? He's, boom, right back in the face. Straight there, right in front of you. You've said this, you've accused, and I'm right back at you. Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? You see what he's doing? He's saying there's a command of God way back for the priests to wash their hands. And you have created a tradition. Not all traditions are bad. You've created a tradition 
for people to wash their hands so that they're reminded of their connection to the priesthood. But what you're doing is you're breaking the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. How? I think for a moment the Pharisees would have been caught off guard and they would say, well actually no, we're keeping that tradition. Ah, the one that I'm talking about is this one. For God said, honour your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that anyone who declares that, that what might have been used to help their mother or father is devoted to God, they are not to honour their father and mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. How complex is that? Let's just work out what's going on. It, it, took me, it took me a few commentaries and a bit of reading to actually understand what is the argument here. Jesus is saying basically this. Look, there are two things that you have been commanded to do. You've been commanded to honor your father and mother. And you have also been commanded to give in devotion to God. They're the two things that you've done. You're commanded to do. Why are you commanded to honor your father and mother? Because you don't live with a welfare system. You don't live with pension schemes. And you are to honor your father and mother and you are to give and you are to support in a way which is absolutely right and appropriate. In fact, you are to be the shining example to the world around of what it really means to honor and care and respect and love. That's the one side. And you're also to give to God in devotion. And what they'd worked out is, I tell you what, hang on a sec. Yeah, got it. We can kill two birds with one stone here. If we take what we, have to, what we give to our parents to support them, and we call that a gift of devotion to God, even though it goes to our parents, we could save a bit of cash. It's great. We, kill two, we keep two commandments. Oh, we are, we are going to observe the commandments absolutely. We're going to keep them. We're going to absolutely honor our father and mother. We're going to give as we should. And we're also going to give by devotion to God. And we're going to call this chunk that we give to our parents devoted to God. And Jesus says, you are, you, who are you? Who do you think you are kidding? If you say that that is devoted to God, even though it's going to your parents, then you're not honoring your parents. Because that, you are, it's almost as though you haven't actually given it to your parents because you've given it devoted to God. Do you, do you see the argument that Jesus is is having with these Pharisees, he's pointing the finger to their, their real issue. That they will construct all sorts of ways to fulfill the letters of the law. Let's have a look. What have we got to do this week? Honor father and mother? Yeah, went to the market yesterday, bought, bought a bag of grain. Yeah, bought some honey. Yeah. Gave it to mum, yeah. Ah, devotion to God. Oh, it's okay because that bag of honey and that grain, I devoted them to God before I gave them to mum. There's two ticks, yep. That is four ticks in the box. 
And Jesus turns around to them and he says this, Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your traditions. You make traditions and then you twist your traditions so that you don't actually worship either. You don't truly worship God and you don't truly honor your father and mother. Everything is about what is serving you. And I point to me. That's what it's like. That's how you are. This honoring thing, it's rubbish. You're not truly honoring either. Jesus then speaks words that were written 700 or so years earlier, 750-ish years earlier by Isaiah. Where Isaiah spoke these words, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. 700 or so years earlier that was written. And Jesus pulled that out of the prophecy of Isaiah and he said this. What was going on back then for Isaiah? What Isaiah confronted back then 700 or so years ago, it is exactly the same. You worship me with words and your hearts are far from me. Wow. Jesus, Jesus absolutely confronts these spiritual leaders because he wants to speak to them and say, you need to understand what the real issue is. The real issue is not what you do so much. It's where your hearts are. Where are your hearts? We live in a world, don't we, where our hearts govern us. I think probably more than it did even for the days of Jesus. In the days of Jesus, people were absolutely clear that they had to follow the observance of the law of God. And we're absolutely convinced that we follow the observance of the ideas of our heart. So from Jesus the disruptor, we now see Jesus the confronter of the hearts. Look at verse 10. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand, what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that's what defiles them. What goes in, you see what they're saying, what these guys over here are saying is if you don't wash your hands, your hands are going to be dirty. It's possible that you might have touched ceremonially unclean stuff in the marketplace and then you're going to eat and it's going to go inside you and you're going to be defiled. And Jesus says it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles them, it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles them. It's the opposite way around. They think they're observing by taking care of what goes in and they don't realize it's, that's not the issue, it's what comes out that's the problem. 
Jesus confronts in such a way that probably speaks to us in a more powerful way. I am, I am absolutely clear and aware and I understand. I've spent so many years thinking and working through the issue that we are shaped so much by the experiences of our lives. But Jesus also confronts us today and he says all of those experiences of our lives they are things on the outside. They are things that come in from the outside. The real problem that you and I have got is what's already on the inside. The condition of our hearts is the real problem. That's the starting point. Yes, all of those things can come in and affect us and hit us and knock us off course and shape us and all of that. But we already have this innate problem. We have the problem of what is within. So that Peter finally turns to Jesus and he says, Look, just can you explain this parable to us? Verse 16, Jesus turns to Peter. You're so dull. I love Peter because he's out there and he asks the questions, but he's taking one for the team here, really, isn't he? To be perfectly honest. All the rest of the, all the, rest of the disciples who are with Jesus probably saying, what's he on about? <laughs> Peter pipes up and he's the one who gets the, are you so dull? <laughs> I'm glad he did. I'm glad he asked the question because Jesus really reinforces what the truth is. Jesus says, don't you see that whatever enters, into the, enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from where? The heart. And these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Saying, these guys are bent out of shape because you might be defiled by eating with dirty hands. Something that's touched, something that's unclean. But they, that is like insignificant compared to the huge issue that you have with the, the, the ability for your heart to cause all of these issues to come out. I think very often what isn't said, or rather what is said silently, is also the outcome of the heart, isn't it? You and I know <laughs> that there is a whole list there and, and many of us wouldn't wouldn't be able to tick the box to say that we have obviously and clearly and openly committed all of those horrific things. But I would say that none of us could wipe the slate clean when we looked at where our heart's attitude was 
towards all of those things. I might not have done them, but I tell you what, there was times when I wanted to. There was times when my heart exposed to me the reality of me. What does that say to our generation? I think it says this. We have this idea. We have this confidence that all of the problems that we have, all of the issues that we have, are somehow caused by out there. I wouldn't have done this apart from this, 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 this. All of those coming together, if they hadn't happened, I wouldn't have done it. But the reality is that they all did happen, and I, I, it's where I am. It's that out there's fault. We, we might not have it with, in fact, we would ridicule the idea that you could be morally or ethically unclean by not washing your hands. But we don't ridicule the idea that we can be morally or ethically unclean by only assuming that out there affects us and not confronting the reality that in here is where the problem is. Jesus is so insightful. And one of the powerful things I find again and again when we come to the message of the Bible is that what he says spoke to that generation then in a particular way, which was, don't eat without washing your hands. That's ridiculous. The issue is your heart. But exactly what he said back then speaks to us now, today, in a slightly different way. We say it's all out there. They said it's all out there. Neither of us confirm the fact that it's all in here. That's the issue. And Jesus speaks across millennia into our, into our current situation. I think we have, and you know, this, I am walking on a, I am walking a tightrope here, because I also recognise that one of the things that we absolutely need to engage with is the way that our emotions can be crushed by a lack of self-confidence and awareness. I understand that. But we can take it so far that we have this, this imaginary view that if all that bad stuff out there didn't happen, and if we all looked inside, the world would be a perfect, beautiful place. If we could all settle on what we have the potential to be, what we could all be, the very best me. If we could all get to that, the world would be great if we all just looked inside. And Jesus is saying, if you all look inside, the world will be exactly as it is now. Because it's what's inside that comes out. That is what Jesus is confronting with the Pharisees and what He's confronting with you and me today. And so how can we possibly, how can we possibly look to this and have any hope? The first thing I would say is that the very words that Jesus speaks 
are from the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah speaks these words speaking about the, the issue of the heart inside and, and the problem that we have. And he goes on to say, verse 9 of Jeremiah chapter 17, we read this. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Our hearts are deceitful and beyond cure. And we say, well, that, that's terrible. Who is he speaking to? Beginning of chapter 17, we read this. Judah's sin is engraved with an iron tool inscribed with a flint point on the tablets of their hearts, Jesus says. Speaking about the tribe of Judah, saying their hearts are desperately wicked. Judah, their sin is inscribed on their hearts. You are in a hopeless case. 700 or 780 odd years later, Paul speaks in exactly the same way. And he says this. What a wretched man I am. When he understands the reality of his heart, he says, what a wretched man that I am. And we're thinking, oh man, this is so bad. This is, all of this is about how, how our hearts are in a problem area. How can we possibly turn this to worship? And Paul turns it in an instant to worship. And he says this, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death, doom and gloom, Boom! Praise. Thanks be to God. Do you see that? Do you see the... How can Paul... How can you possibly look into the reality of the problem of your heart and turn it to praise in an instant? How can you do that? How can you do that? How is that possible? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that amazing? He turns it instantly to praise and he says, thanks be to God. All of this stuff that's gone before, what does it say? It says, we, we don't need helping. We don't need fixing. We need rescuing. And Paul says, who will rescue me? And he says, thanks be to God. How has Jesus done that? The answer is this, when Jeremiah spoke about the devastating, corrupt state of the heart of Judah, God was preparing for the Lion of Judah, Jesus himself, to come into this world and to take on himself in a moment on the cross, the corruption of the hearts of Judah. He becomes the one who bears that horrible, broken, rebellious heart. He's the one who says, this heart, which is like this, a heart which carries the potential for murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. That's the heart. That's the problem. That's my heart. 
And Jesus says, Judah, I am the Judah. I am the one who breaks in. And that heart that is your problem becomes my heart. You see that? The heart that is your problem becomes my heart. I bear all of that potential for rebellion and sin and outrage and awfulness. I become that person so that you can become who I am. And in that moment, Jesus bears the rebellious hearts of every single person who trusts in Him. Is that amazing? That's how Jesus can come into this world and on the one hand He can appear so confrontational, speaking about the kind of hearts that we've got and not, not be in one... Bizarrely, He becomes the judge and yet also the Savior. He's the one who comes and says, this is your problem. You can't do anything about it. It's how your heart is but I'll bear it. That's what the cross is all about. That's why we sing about the cross. That's why Paul turns a moment of looking into the reality of our hearts into a moment of praise. Do you know what? I don't think we can truly, honestly, with all of our hearts, really praise the God who we say we love until we've looked at the reality of our hearts and seen what Jesus has done. We cannot do it. If we think that the Christian faith is a, a lovely little feeling, an experience of singing, and an uplifting moment of praise to God, and we've not looked into the reality of our broken, rebellious hearts and seen what Jesus has done, we haven't reached the true joy of what worship is. The true Joy of worship is knowing that in spite of what I am, I am truly forgiven. In spite of who I am, I am truly saved. In spite of who I am, Jesus has borne that so that I might be free. Annie Dillard. She recognized the dramatic God before whom we worship. Annie Dillard, who said that we should be wearing crash helmets for church, she saw the awesome God. She saw the God of absolute judgmental power. But do you know what she has not seen, it seems to me? She has not seen the God of forgiving grace. And the reality is that the God who we worship is both of those. A God of astounding, awful judgment who confronts our hearts, but also a God who breaks in and forgives us in His Son. A God of grace which can cause us now to turn our hearts to absolute complete joyful worship.